want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. Continuing our series through Matthew. The king and his kingdom. And specifically, as we've been going through these weeks, we've been looking at the unstoppable mission of Jesus as he unleashes his disciples upon the community, the nation of Israel. It tells them to pray for the workers, that God would raise up workers among the harvest. And then he turns around and calls some of them out into the harvest. And then he gives them some challenges. Last week we talked about how uh, the mission of Jesus will not be unopposed. Uh, it will be opposed. There will be uh, persecution. It will not be easy. And that renders the question of, well, how are we supposed to deal with that? And we got into that some last week. But one of the specific questions is, how do we deal with fear in the midst of proclaiming the mission of, of Jesus. There's been quite a bit of research on fear in the, through the years, and there's, in fact, there's been tons of different uh, elements of fear that have been diagnosed. In fact, I'll tell you a couple things about fear. Um, the percentage of things feared that will never take place. What percentage of things that are feared will never take place? Well, it's about 60%. Some statisticians, I'm not sure how you measure that, but uh, here's another step. Uh, percentage of things feared that happened in the past and can't be changed, 30%. A lot of people fear things that happened in the past that will never change. It's not going to change or necessarily happen again. About 30% um, of those things. Uh, percentage of things feared that are considered to be insignificant issues. Things that people are afraid of that really aren't really a big deal. If they really thought about it, it's really 90% of the things people fear are, are not significant issues. Um, another thing, percentage of things feared in relation to health that will never happen. 88%. 88% of the things we fear health-wise, I fear I'm going to get this, I'm going to get that, I'm going to be sick with this, be sick with it. 88% of the things we fear health-wise never happen. Uh, number of Americans who have been diagnosed with a phobia of some sort, that means diagnosed with some kind of fear issue, 6.3 million. That's the diagnosed ones. And then you have those that are undiagnosed, which I'm sure is significantly higher. Now, of the fears out there, what is the greatest fear people struggle with? Well, of the top fears, one of the greatest ones, 74% of the population struggles with glossophobia. Glossophobia. Yeah. Let me tell you what that is. Oh, yeah, it's speaking in publicly in front of other people. Public speaking. There's another fear. The second one there is uh, necrophobia. Necrophobia, that is the fear of death. 68% of the population struggles with the fear of death. 74 public speaking. 30.5% of the population is afraid of spiders. Spidacus, deathicus. You guys know that. Um, they have, they're afraid, they're arachnophobias, uh, phobias, I guess. Um, another one is the fear of darkness. 11%. That's an easy one, a nightlight. We'll fix that. It's really not a problem. A little nightlight. You can take care of that. And then you have Franklin D. Roosevelt, in his famous inaugural speech, I think in 1933, he said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Remember that? You guys hear that one? It echoed in the background, too. That was nice. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And there's some truth to what he says in that there's a lot of things we are afraid of that we really don't need to be afraid of. And the things that we really should fear, we often don't fear. Jesus head-on deals with the issue of fear, and here's what he says. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpent and innocent as doves. Now, I 
won't get into that, but we talked about having, um, we want to be wise and smart, discerning, not naive, but we also want to maintain our innocence. How do we balance it out? That was last week. Um, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake and bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you will speak or what you shall say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speaks, but the Spirit of the Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against their parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. And truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is not enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub or the devil, how much more will they malign those of his household? If they hate your master, they're going to hate you. If they hate your teacher, they're going to hate you, which brings us to verse 26. So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what I whisper, you hear whispered, proclaim to the housetops. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Let's stop there. So how do we deal with the issue of Fear. Well, a couple things. What not to fear. What not to fear. We'll talk about this a little more in detail in a moment. But what not to fear. Simply put, don't fear people. That's what he's saying. The, the wolves that try to devour you. The people that try to kill you and can kill you. He says, don't fear those who can kill your body. Well, it seems like that would be something legitimate worth being afraid of, right? But Jesus says, don't fear those who can kill your body. What not to fear. Don't fear people. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. So why should we not fear them? What not to fear people? Why not to fear them? Why why not fear them? Well, because nothing is hidden that will not be made known. And that word known is a what's called a theological passive verb, which means that God is the one who will reveal all. God's going to put the light on it. He's going to Put the spotlight on. He's going to reveal uh, that which is hidden. So why do we not fear? Because God's going to illuminate everything. Now, a couple thoughts of this. What is it that God is going to illuminate? Well, there's several things that we know. Some of them implied, some of them not implied. But one of those things that we know that God is going to reveal is he's going to reveal sin. He's going to reveal sin. Sins committed in secrecy that, that seem to have no consequence, God is going to to reveal those things. It's going to put them to light. Nothing is hidden that's not going to be revealed. How does that make you feel? Does it make me feel really good? Does it make you feel good? Listen, we think that we can do things and we can live our lives in a way that, that as long as everything in public looks good, it doesn't really matter. God sees what happens in private. More than that, God not only sees what happens in private, God sees what happens under the hoods of our life. God sees what's going on, the motive in our lives. He sees the thoughts and the the attitudes of our hearts even more than the actions, in addition to the actions. And there's nothing that's hidden that's not going to be revealed. God's going to expose those things to light. In fact, he tells us that um, 
we will reign, those who reign with him, those who are believers, will one day be set up as judges over the earth. We will judge the earth. So not only does, will he reveal all, but then we'll actually be judging those um, under Christ's authority along with him that have sinned against God when those sins are revealed. But then another aspect of this, what do I tell you in the dark, say in the light, whatever is whispered, proclaim in the housetops, uh, what is hidden will, will be made known. Another aspect of this is one of the things hidden in this world, not only secret sins, but the authority of Jesus is hidden from this world. The world does not realize the authority of Jesus, and we know that there will be a day where everybody universally will proclaim that Jesus is Lord. Like it or not, all will recognize and proclaim. Jesus' authority will be universally revealed. There will be a universal public declaration of Jesus as Lord and of the gospel for that matter. Let me give you a couple examples of that in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him. Therefore, because of what? Because Jesus did not see equality with God a thing to be held onto, but was willing to become a servant and come to this earth. Not only a servant, but he was willing to die on the cross, not only die on the cross, but die um, in our place for our sins, suffering, crucifixion. Because of all of that stuff, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And then when we look at Revelation, you have the image of, of John up there and they're running around. They're upset because and everybody's upset because nobody there's nobody who can open the, the scrolls. Nobody can pop the seal because nobody is worthy to break open the seal that has sealed the scroll. And then suddenly they all say, oh, it's no problem. It's it, the lamb who was slain. He is worthy to open the scroll. What, what, is, what is he saying? There will be a day where all will know that the lion of the tribe of Judah, who's also the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the earth, is worthy. He alone is worthy. That is the another way of saying the whole world will know the gospel, that Jesus came as king and submitted himself to this, um, to, uh, this earth and was willing to, to lay himself as a bondservant on this earth, to be crucified and die in our place, live a perfect life, die an unjust death so we can avoid a just death, and then was resurrected from the dead. The death, burial, resurrection of Christ will be seen in the very image of who Jesus is, seen to be in heaven, according to Revelation, as the lamb who was slain. And so the gospel will universally be proclaimed. So why do we not fear? Because everything that's hidden is going to be revealed that being sin, and then also uh, on justice, and then, and then attached to that will be uh, the gospel of Jesus and the fact that Jesus alone is Lord of the earth. The other reason we don't fear is because only God can kill the soul. Only God can kill the soul. That's the third reason we do not fear. It says, do not fear, verse 28, those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. What is he talking about? There's a little um, catechism that we go through with our kids, and uh, catechism is a series of questions. This is one of the reasons, or one of the ways, by the way, uh, referring to 
um, equipping parents that, that you can disciple your own kids. As you, and, and for that matter, if you can read, you can be ahead of them theologically. Uh, you, to disciple somebody else, you just got to be a step ahead. And so some parents feel like, I just don't know. I don't have what it takes. I'm not a good Sunday school teacher. So I can't, I've never taught a kid's class. I can't keep, teach my kids. You can you know, read a sentence and memorize it and um, spit it back to them and uh, learn it along with them, look up the verses. It's, pretty, it's really not that hard. So we, we learn this little catechism, and it starts with um, who made you answer. God made me. Catechisms are questions, and then the kids respond with the answer. So they're memorizing doctrine and theology. Who made you? God made me. Why did God make? Uh, what else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make you in all things? For his own glory. Well, how can we glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. Who are our first parents? We eventually get down to that question. Um, Adam and Eve. Where did Adam and Eve come from? God made the body of Adam from the ground, and God took the body of um, Adam from the uh, side of God took the body of Eve from the side of the ribs of Adam, because one of our kids would always say the wrist of Adam. And I'll be like, no, not, not the wrist, the ribs, the ribs. So, uh, but then we say, what does Adam and Eve have? Is they had a body as well as a soul. Do we have a body as well as a soul? Yes, we have a body as well as a soul. It's helping our kids understand that you're not just what, we, what you see is not you. This is very helpful because there was a time we went to a funeral. I was doing a funeral for a friend. Um, grandparents and and we are a couple of my kids were there Peyton and Luke were there and Janet was helping watch this other family's um, toddler and uh, and so they saw the the um, friend's grandmother in in the casket and you know of course a lot of questions came from that you know what's going on there what you know all these different things and so we were able to help our kids understand not that they completely understand the concept of the soul but in that little moment they understood that there's a body that's the body but that's not the soul there's a body as well as a soul. And, and remember we learned that we have a body as well as a soul that will never die. Her soul's not there. Her soul's with the Lord. And that's what is, Jesus is referring to here. Let me give you some scripture that behind this. Luke 23, 43. He said, truly I say to you, to the thief on the cross, today you will be, today you will be with me in paradise. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to be put on a heavenly dwelling. If indeed, by putting it on, we may be found naked. For while we are still in, in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Because our, our tent, you know, sometimes as you get older, you'll know, if you don't already, that the tent is just, it creaks, the doors creak a little. The zipper doesn't work as good, right? The toll, the, the poles are a little crooked now, and everything, it, it just, the we groan, okay? The older you get, the more you're going to groan. Some of you younger bucks, you like your tent, and you're like, well, i got a great tent. I feel great. Yeah, well, you just wait five years, and you won't even be able to see. Four, while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. A new body. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us his spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in this body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. In other words, we'd rather get rid of this tent and be, have the heavenly tent. So whether we are at home on earth or away in heaven, we make it our aim to please him. So whether I'm in heaven or I'm here, I want to I live the same way. Think about that concept. What if we lived in a way that whether I'm in heaven or I'm on earth, I would be doing the same thing? What are you going to be doing in heaven? We're going to be praising God 
in, in, in basking in the glory and the radiance of Christ. Why can't we do that now? Why can't we do that now? That was Paul's passion, was whether I'm with this tent that's breaking down or the heavenly tent, it doesn't really matter. Either way, I want to be doing the same thing. Make it my aim to please God, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Then again, once again, it's important how we live our lives, so that each one of us may receive what is due for what he has done in this body, whether good and evil. Now, let me give you a quick little thought on that. You're saying, well, I thought when I, when I repent of my sins, I put my trust in Jesus, going to take everything away. Oh, there's still, you will still be held accountable for the way you lived your life, even as a believer. Not to the point where the fact that you are not perfect is going to send you to hell. God has justified you. He's removed your sins as far as the east is from the west. The debt of your sins is gone. But what you have done with your life from that point forward, God's going to ask you, what have you done? I've forgiven you. I've removed your sins. I gave you my spirit. So what have you done for the kingdom? I left you there for a reason. You ever thought about that? I, you know, when we do baptism, what we ought to do, I've always talked about, we ought to just hold people under and just send them on the glory. I mean, because is it better to live on this earth or better to be in heaven? Which is better? Heaven, we would say, right? And, and you know, if we're not going to do anything with the days that God has given us on this earth, then why don't we just go to heaven? If all we're going to do is eat at buffets and sing songs and have happy church time, and we're not going to really do anything to, to engage the losses of the community, then, well, then let's just go to glory. Why deal with this earth if we're not going to be faithful to be about the unstoppable mission of Jesus? Why don't we just dunk people and send them to glory? You guys are going, you know, I thought Methodist would be a good, I think sprinkling would be better. I'm a little, a little afraid of this guy. Kidding. I've never lost anybody in baptism. They've all, they've all come up um, alive. All right. So, but important things to think about. So for we are all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and we'll receive what is due, whether good or evil, for what we've done in this body. Philippians chapter 5, verse 22 and 24 says, for if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for, labor for me. Yet, which will I choose? I cannot tell you. I'm hard pressed between the two. So he has this, this dilemma, the body or the spirit. Do I have to be in the tent, physical tent or can I be with the presence of the Lord? My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. What is he saying? He's saying that he would rather be absent from the body and to be in the presence of the Lord. But it's more necessary that as long as he is wearing this body, that he's going to be faithful to God. Whose decision is it when God is done with your earthly tent, with your body to send you home? It's God's decision. God can allow, it, it could be sickness, it could be car crash. Ultimately, we, we, we don't know what's going to happen to us. We don't know. God can allow sin, for that matter, somebody to come and they, you could die. Somebody could kill you. For the purposes of the kingdom of God or for some dumb reason. Who knows? We, I, but don't fear that. Fear him who, who, who can kill your soul. Fear God. You have a body as well as a, a soul. And the body, though, it's not, it, the older you get, the more you're like, this thing is worthless. I, gotta, I, gotta, I need a warranty on this body. I'm ready for the next body. And this earthly life becomes less of value. And you realize, man, the heavenly body and then the next life is a lot better. The goal of life is to die before you die. 
Man, if we could just die to self-preservation, if we could just die to fearing losing our bodies, if we can just die to fearing losing our health, we just die to that and live to the Christ who has secured my soul for eternity and rest in that, where the outlook of your life will be radically changed. That's why uh, we don't need to fear. We don't need to fear because we know that we have surrendered self to Christ. Now, what does he say about hell? Let me just say this briefly. Rather fear him who can destroy the soul as well as the body uh, in hell. The word hell there is Gehenna. It's a Hebrew word. It was actually a geographical place. It was a trash dump outside of uh, Jerusalem, on the very edge of Jerusalem, um, city of David. There was this trash dump, and they basically what had happened is in, in ancient, when the Philistines were there and Canaanites, they, they used this valley and they would throw babies off into the fire there to sacrifice them to the god, I believe Moloch, one of the false gods. And so they kind of condemned that area and they just said, you know what, after they stopped the child sacrifices, that, that area is going to be cut off and that's just going to be a trash dump because there's nothing sacred about it. That is a wicked place. And so they would have this ever-burning fire going to consume the trash. And so there was always a fire burning to, to, to burn up whatever was dumped there. And it was the ever-burning fire. Any day of the week, you could look towards that side of Jerusalem and see smoke coming up, and that was the ever-burning fire. And Jesus often used that to describe hell. And in the Old Testament, is often used to describe hell. Hell is a place called Gehenna. They're like Gehenna. It's the ever-burning, unquenchable fire. What does the Bible teach us about hell? Well, I would like to tell you, and many people, it's become very popular to say that when, when you die, that you're just going to be annihilated and you're just going to burn up and then it's, it's, that's it if you don't know Jesus. Um, but, and, I, and I wish I could say that's true, but it, as best as I can read and interpret and understand Scripture as well as you can read, interpret, and understand Scripture, you're going to have to do a lot of mental gymnastics to get around the fact that Jesus and the rest of the Bible is presented presents hell as a place where there is eternal suffering, eternal judgment, eternal um, separation from the love of God under the wrath of God. It is a place where there is gnashing of teeth and suffering forever. Not a temporal place, not a place where you just go, it's a bad day, and then for eternity you're dead, it's gone. So you suffer for a couple hours, and then it's, it's, it's over. No, it's a place where there's eternal suffering. We should be motivated by that, motivated to not want to go there and motivated to not want other people to go there. Don't fear man. Fear the one who can kill your soul. Fear the one who can kill your soul. Then he goes on to say, and not, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? This is basically a uh, one-tenth of, or one-twelfth, I'm sorry, one-sixteenth of a daily income, of one person's daily pay, one-sixteenth of a daily income was what it cost to buy a um, sparrow. A lot of people would eat them because they're cheap, a little protein. Um, they use them for sacrificial system, different things. And so uh, he's saying, are two sparrows not sold for a penny? In other words, they're, they're pretty cheap. It's like the cost of a hot dog you know, at the gas station. You know, it doesn't really cost much. Uh, and, not, um, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. And again, that word numbered, God is inspired that a word would be used there that just says, has God not numbered? I mean, in other words, that he knows that he knows that he knows 
precisely with authority. How many hairs are on your head? How many you lost this morning uh, in your shower? How many you pulled out on the way here of traffic or because your kids or whatever? I mean, God knows exactly how many hairs are on your head. So fear not, therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. God is intimately acquainted with who you are. He knows everything about you. He cares for you more than a couple of sparrows. And yet when a couple of sparrows fall out of the sky, he, he knows about them. So don't be afraid. He knows your plight. He knows your situation. He is not shocked by what's going on in your life. Don't fear man. Fear God, not man. Verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will... Also, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But everyone who denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. Let me give you a couple um, thoughts as we finish this passage. There was a time when I was uh, in high school, actually, that I was um, and it's going to be a, a big shock for you. And probably you're going to think a lot less of me, but um, and, and you never saw this coming. But uh, I evidently had some issues with attention deficit disorder. So they say um, I don't know. I don't see it. But um, as I did, but then I got distracted <laughs> that I couldn't remember. But anyways, um, so I went through some testing and they had me do all these crazy things. I don't know if you've ever done any kind of testing like this, but it's pretty funny. But they had me draw a picture of my family. And I, little did I know they're psychoanalyzing me. I don't really know what's going on. So, so I'm drawing a picture of my family and I happen to be wearing a green checkered, uh, green and black checkered flannel shirt and some like, um, you know, hiking boots. And so I draw myself first because I'm thinking, okay, I draw my family. I'll start with me because I know what I'm wearing today. And I know it. So I draw myself out, green shirt, you know, whatever. And then I start going through the rest of my family. And as I get down the line, um, I'm running out of space on the paper. So uh, I didn't really, I wasn't an artist. So I didn't really plan out the whole family unit thing really well on the piece of paper. So I start making people smaller. And um, as I go down the line and then I get to um, the, the final thing, I, I think I put, I guess I put my dad maybe last because, you know, he lives in Florida. And, um, and so I thought, well, let me, I'll put my, I can't leave my dad out. So I put him there at the end and he was smaller. And the, the, anyways, I read the analysis later of the whole thing. And boy, it was like, okay, he has an elevated sense of himself because he's larger than everybody else. But he also struggles with kind of a, a melancholy view of life because his shirt is green, which is to show that he's probably, you know, chronically depressed or something. I, I don't know. There was some analysis because of the color I was wearing. And they went this whole thing that was ultimately, I had an elevated view of myself and everybody else was a lot smaller as I went down. And my dad was the most insignificant in the whole family. And I evidently had some issues with him because I put him at the end and he was the smallest. You know, the, the funny thing is there's some truth to the reality that, that all of us sometimes have an elevated view, not necessarily of ourselves, but of man. And we give man more power than man really needs to have. And that's what Jesus says. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But he who denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Here's the question. Who is big in your life? Who's big in your life? Who is the biggest in your life? All of us struggle with a little something called the fear of man. You say, I don't fear man. I could care less. I bet there's an area of your life where you fear that man. Let me give you a couple diagnostic questions. In fact, um, if we had time, I'd have you draw a picture and I'd analyze it, but we don't have time for that. So let me just tell you a couple or ask you a couple questions. Do you struggle with peer pressure? Have you ever struggled with peer pressure? 
or keeping up with the Joneses, if you will. Peer pressure is high school. Keeping up with the Joneses, that's normal life, right? Uh, you ever struggle with keeping up with everybody else? Well, they got this, so I need that. Or the, everybody in society has this and has that, and so I feel like I should have these things. And peer pressure, that's fear of man. Fear of man. When you, have, when you succumb to peer pressure or wanting to look like other people for whatever reason, ultimately, that is a fear of man issue. Do you struggle with not being able to say no to people or overcommitting? That, that means that you are a people pleaser. People pleasers have fear of man issues. They don't want to say no to somebody because they might think lesser of them, so they just continue to say yes to everything. So you have a fear of man issue in that area. Is self-esteem a big issue to you? Are you constantly looking for people to fill your tank or your self-worth, and you're constantly looking for people to, to give you a sense of well-being and of identity and want to know that I'm good with everybody? And you, you might do that through humor. You might do that through putting yourself down. You might do it through the way you dress or, or um, the way you act, but you constantly need people to be affirming you and to be praising you and to saying great things to you. If that is you, then you have, that's a fear of man issue. Do you get easily embarrassed or easily get your feelings hurt? You find yourself often getting your feelings hurt by people. You get a little upset at things. Well, I just can't believe they saved it. Well, that's just ridiculous. Well, I just can't believe this. I can't believe that. Or, or that really hurt me. That really, that, what you said was it hurt me. It hurt me. It hurt me. And, that just, and that's the temperament of your life. That's a fear of man issue. People are hurting you all the time. Maybe people are insensitive. You need a new friend group, okay? That might be a factor. But nonetheless, have you asked the question, maybe I have given man an elevated sense of value in my life to where my significance comes from whether they like me? And when they say things I don't feel like are nice or whatever, then it really hurts me. Maybe you're trying to get your tank filled by people that will never be able to fill your tank. Are you jealous of others? You struggle with jealousy of others. Are, are you controlled um, and, and affected by what when other people have success in their life? That, that means that you're controlled by success and possessions. It's not fair. Everybody else has these things, and I don't have these things. It's not fair. They got this, and I didn't. I didn't get this. They had that, and I didn't have that. I, they, whatever it is, whether it's a relationship they got you didn't get, whether it's a promotion they got that you didn't get, whether it's a, um, a earthly thing that they got that you didn't get, whatever it is, if you're jealous, that means that that people and things and what that have an elevated sense of worth in your value to where Jesus is not where he's supposed to be. We desperately seek the approval of others, then we have fear of man issues. All of us, every the things, and there's a, there's a bunch more, but undoubtedly each of these, one of these in the list I mentioned has got to touch you in some area. We have a tendency to give man an elevated place in our lives and we diminish God. And that is what Jesus is talking about. If we cannot have God in his proper place and man in his proper place, then how can we be faithful to the mission of Jesus when we have fear of man issues? How can we see the harvest when our fear of man is so great? And the answer is you can't. So the second question is, who is your sovereign? Think about the, the Christological implications of this passage. This is pretty good. Listen to this. Jesus says, so everyone who acknowledges me, think about what he's saying. Everybody acknowledges me before men. I will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. So he's claiming to have 
a direct line and authority with the Father in an intimate relationship with the Father. He's saying, if you don't acknowledge me, uh, if you acknowledge me, I will go before my Father on your behalf and have a conversation with him and will point you out to him in the crowd. That's what he's saying. But if you deny me before men, I will also deny you before my Father who is in heaven. What we're seeing is that Jesus is, um, in fact, he described himself as the, the rock. The Bible, the New Testament, calls Jesus the scandalon, the scandal. I mean, the rock that makes men stumble and the stone that makes them fall. You cannot come across the person of Jesus and not trip. You will not, you can't stand up in arrogance and pride and walk over Jesus. You can't, you will trip. You will stumble when you are confronted with who Jesus is. You will either stumble into repentance, faith, and salvation, or you will stumble into judgment and destruction. Either way, you can't come across Jesus and remain the same. So where is Jesus in your life? What you believe about and do with Jesus is of utmost importance for your future. What you believe about Jesus and what you do with that belief in Jesus is of utmost importance for your future. It affects everything. Is Jesus big or is man big in your life? Fear of man blinds us from the harvest. When we fear man, we cannot see the harvest. How do we deal with fear of man? Again, it's not that we don't care about people. It's not that we don't want to be considered about people. But when we get our significance and we get our identity from the relationships of people around us or people that we don't not even, not even like, but we, we, what people think about us is paralyzing to us. That, that will train wreck our ability to love other people unconditionally. Because I'm so concerned about what people think about me, I really can't care about their soul and them spending eternity in hell and ever-burning fire. I care more about what they think about me than them spending eternity in Gehenna. That's what's going on. That's a big deal. It's a big deal. So let me read it once again in context. Verse 26. So have no fear of them, of man. For nothing that is covered will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Side note, secret personal religion is totally not found in the Bible. Well, my relationship with Jesus is really personal to me. Well, I'm glad it's personal, but it shouldn't be private. What is said and hidden, what is in dark, proclaim, illuminate, put it out there. Don't hide it. If you hide it, it's a fear of man issue. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill your soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father. But every, even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. How, how do we acknowledge God before man? Well, really quickly, um, on the back of your card, you have 
a little slide that looks like this, um, basically. What's your personal mission? Who has Jesus called you? What is the harvest that God has called you to? If you remove the fear of man, and we say, you know what, I'm not going to be afraid of man. I know that Jesus is going to give me, as the previous passage said, the words to speak, and so I just need to trust God and not be worried about what people think about me. And because their soul is um, being with the Lord and finding forgiveness and peace and hope in Jesus is far more important than me possibly being misrepresented or them thinking I'm stupid or goofy or whatever. That doesn't matter. I care more about their soul than I do what I come, how I come across. I'm just going to lovingly talk to them. What, what's your personal mission? Is it your neighborhood? Is it your workplace? Is it your family? What's your personal mission? Write that down. Secondly, missions in the community through your life group is what we're getting at there. Uh, are you part of, you helping out with Pinecrest? Or are you in your... Are you actively thinking about how your life group can invest in, maybe throw a party for one of your neighbors that, that doesn't have a lot of friends or family, that minister to some need in the community that you know of, that, that let's get beyond just the community general stuff, but specifically, how can your life group minister to somebody? And how can you, do, how can you join your life group in doing ministering to other people? And then lastly, missional gathering. We don't just gather to gain some information and then go home. We gather on Sunday mornings, to create an environment where people can be challenged and grow spiritually, but then also those that are far from God or have had a bad experience with church that aren't willing to go to church again, but they'll come to a movie theater, <laughs> would be willing to come here. But there's a lot of stuff that happens behind the scenes for this to happen. And so there's a lot of setup and tear down and ministry to children. And there's always, every given Sunday, there's probably 12 to 15 people and kids out in the lobby that are taking care of children and ministering and doing things. What, is there a way that you can jump in and you can serve and you could be a part of and you'd be open to, to helping? Join us in that. But be about the harvest. Forget the fear of man. Forget worried about that. Let's, let's get our unconditional need for love and acceptance and peace met through Christ who alone can meet it so that we will be free to see the needs of the world because man is in his proper place and God is in his proper place. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would speak to us through these truths, through your spirit, that you would drive home very specifically the, the things that you want us to know and to remember and to um, cling to based upon these truths that we have looked at this morning. Father, I pray that we would not fear man. God, that you would help calibrate our hearts and our minds, that you would refocus our vision so that man would be where he belongs and that Jesus would be exalted and elevated and have first place, that he would be the center of our lives. In Jesus' name, to his glory, we pray. Mm -hmm.